morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Simpoga in Washington. Today is Monday, January 2nd, and here are some of the stories we are covering. The legacy of Pope Benedict XVI, who died on Saturday. After the display ended, the stampede ensued, resulting in the instant deaths of five people and injuries of several others. Emergency responders arrived on the scene and transported the injured individuals to the hospital where nine were confirmed dead. A stampede that occurred at a New Year's Eve event in the Ugandan capital Kampala results in the deaths of at least nine people. They reduced parole. But here to be the point, things are still costly. Last year wasn't like this. Last year was COVID. We were having some COVID issue, but last year was better than today. This is, this is very bad to us. And record inflation in Ghana, the highest in 21 years, makes the holiday season a struggle for many people. Those stories and more coming up on Daybreak Africa. Pope Benedict XVI, who shocked the world by resigning from the papacy in 2013, died on Saturday at the age of 95. Benedict, the German conservative theologian who still influenced Roman Catholic Church doctrine, lived for nearly 10 years behind the Vatican's wall as a retired pope. A pope's death usually sets in motion a complicated procedure to choose the next head of the Catholic Church, but Pope Francis succeeded Benedict when he stepped down in 2013. VOS Carl Van Damme asked Monsignor John Ensley, President and CEO of Catholic Charities in Washington, D.C., and a priest on weekends at St. Bartholomew's Church in Bethesda, Maryland, what he thought of Benedict's decision to retire. I thought it was a very courageous uh, and very, um, I guess, servant-oriented decision. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the Pope. Uh, for 600 years, for, you know, for 600, basically, it has not happened. And he decides, for whatever reason, that it's time for him to step aside that's when I'll take his place. I don't know the reasons, but I certainly respect and appreciate the goodness. I think of, I think of St. John the Baptist, you know, and, and he said of Jesus, he said basically, he must increase and I must decrease. And I think to some degree, I felt like this was what the Pope was saying. I've got to get out of the way here. Of the church. I love the church so much, but maybe not the right person health-wise, otherwise right now. So I was just overwhelmingly impressed with that decision, just Unbelievably good decision, I think. Well, a servant-oriented decision, and I think it's, it's turned well because Francis has been a great pope since. And, and speaking of Pope Francis, were you ever uh, in the company of either Pope Francis or Pope Benedict when they came to Washington? Actually, both the Benedict came to Washington. I saw him when he was here, but Pope Francis actually came to Catholic Charities where I work. Uh, I'm it's my day job. I work in the parish on the weekends. So, but basically, he was right here in our chapel. Uh, right in front of our building, he walked through the front door of our building, and he went across the street to the King Library, and he, we had a big tent set up, and um, he greeted the people. Uh, it was an amazing thing. So I, that was a very special time for me to be right in his presence. But again, when Bendik was here earlier, uh, uh, Cardinal World arranged that. I saw him, but not, at, uh, not so close, not so close. Is there anything that you want to say about former Pope Benedict that I didn't specifically ask you that you think is important to mention? I just, you know, I, I, when I think about Pope Benedict, I just think about the, uh, just, just the sacrifice, or the, basically the, the servant leadership. Um, you know, this is not normal for most people to say, I'm in charge, I, I got all the power, I got all the prestige, I'm going to get out of the way. I mean, that wouldn't happen with most CEOs, wouldn't do that. 
you know, when a, most you know, a secular leaders wouldn't do that. It's a pretty, pretty amazing thing. Uh, it speaks to really, um, I think, to the goodness of his heart and frankly, his holiness to say, what's best for the church? What's best for the church? Maybe right now I'm not the best for the church. I'm going to get out of the way. I think it's amazing. It's amazing. That was Monsignor John Ensley, President and CEO of Catholic Charities in Washington, D.C. He was speaking to my colleague of Caravan Dam. During his Popo tenure, Pope Benedict XVI focused on building on the outreach of his predecessors towards Islam, particularly on the efforts of Pope John II, who experts say established trust and opened opportunities for dialogue with Muslims. One of the important milestones in the Pope's efforts included a religious and peaceful initiative called a common word in response to Muslim leaders' open letter. Nihad Award, Executive Director of Council on American-Islamic Relations, spoke with VOA's senior analyst, Mohamed El Shanawi, about the Pope's legacy. First of all, allow me to offer my heartfelt condolences uh, to the Christian communities around the world and the family of uh, the former Pope Benedict on his passing. As we say in Islam, we belong to God and to him we return. The legacy of Pope Benedict will go along in terms of how Muslims and Christians should live and coexist on the basis of mutual respect and mutual understanding. In his earlier days, he built on the legacy of his predecessor, John Paul II, opening lines of communication with the Muslim world. Although human beings, including the Pope, sometimes make statements, and some of those statements may not reflect truly their faith or their own opinion, there was a misunderstanding of his statement about Islam and Muslims. And this happened in the years after 9-11, where the world was living tense situations. Situations and uh, the world also needed leaders of conscience and wisdom to temper the already tense situation. And the world was looking for leadership to help redefine the moment and the relationship between these two largest religious communities around the world. So I was requested by many scholars around the world to help launch an open letter to the Pope and Christian leaders around the world to reset the relationship and remind each other that we Muslims and Christians believe in the same God, the creator of the universe, and that we should live in peace together. And this can only happen when religious leaders, including the Pope, you know, set the tone of respect, brotherhood, and reconciliation that was widely received by Christian leaders, including the Pope, and many people at the time. On June 14, 2006, Pope Benedict urged Israelis and Palestinians in his weekly general audience to return to negotiations after the increasingly blind tit-for-tat violence and Pope Benedict called for the establishment of a Palestinian state. He said, may the international community, which reaffirms Israel's just right to exist in peace, assist the Palestinian people to build their future, moving to establishing their own state. How was that received in the Muslim world? Myself, as a Palestinian refugee, any form of support and recognition of our right to return and to establish our own state and our own land means a lot to us. So I was among those who happy to hear and see leaders like the Pope recognizing and pushing for the world community 
to act and to recognize our rights as the indigenous population in our land, to establish our own state, to live in peace with other people on our land. So when we hear statements coming from world leaders who command respect and fellowship around the world, it meant and it continues to mean a lot to us. During his first visit to a Muslim country in November of 2006, Pope Benedict visited one of Turkey's most famous mosques in what was seen as an attempt to mend relations with the Muslim community. What impact did a silent prayer there on the Muslim-Christian relationship? It shows that eventually making a prayer, connecting to God, regardless of the place, whether it's a church or a mosque or a synagogue or any place, just shows that you know we have to connect to our creator but also to go in other people's spaces and offer the same prayer shows that we may pray differently in different places but we pray to the same god and that eventually we are brothers and sisters in humanity so yes we need more initiatives like this by all sides christians muslims jews uh, people of other faith traditions they have to make every effort to reconcile differences but at the same time create areas of cooperation so Symbolic gestures go a long way if they are accompanied with initiatives and being a good and practical example to what we profess in terms of peaceful coexistence and reconciliation. Nuad Awad, Executive Director of Council on American Islamic Relations, he spoke with VOA senior analyst Mohamed Al Shanawi. Uganda police are investigating a stampede that occurred at a New Year's Eve event in Kampala and resulted in the deaths of at least nine people, including several children. Halima Athman reports from Kampala, Uganda. The deadly crash occurred outside the Freedom City Mall, which hosted an event marking the new year. According to police at midnight, the master of ceremonies encouraged attendees to go outside and watch the fireworks display. Lucas Owayesijir is the deputy spokesman, Kampala Metropolitan Police. After the display ended, the stampede ensued, resulting in the instant deaths of five people and injuries of several others. Emergency responders arrived on the scene and transported the injured individuals to the hospital where nine were confirmed dead. Haji Chimera, whose two children died in the stampede, spoke to VOA by phone. He says the children, one had been promoted to grade seven and the other to grade six. He says their father had taken them to Freedom City. Millions of Ugandans joined the rest of the world to usher in 2023, the first time in the new year was being welcomed with large festivities after two years due to COVID-19. Halimath Mani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Simpuga in Washington. Today is Monday, January 2nd. Record inflation in Ghana, the highest in 21 years, made the holiday season a struggle for many people. The high cost of living forced many Ghanaians to cap their expenses, including traditional travels to the countryside to spend time with relatives. Families are instead trying to save money as the new year begins with uncertainty. Reporter Kent Mensah has more from Accra. Most Ghanaian city dwellers, like 40-year-old Florence Kuju, spend Christmas in the countryside with friends and relatives. 
For Ghana's struggling economy, hit by the pandemic and Russia's war on Ukraine, pushed inflation to a record 50.3%. The World Bank says the cost of food in Ghana is the highest in sub-Saharan Africa, more than doubling in the past year, with a loaf of bread nearly tripling in price. The costs are forcing families such as Kujos to stay in the city this holiday season. She says last year's holiday season was much better, as they had money to buy food and spend quality time with family and friends in the village. Things are very expensive now, says Kujo. So she must cut down holiday expenses because she has a lot of bills to settle next year, including her children's school fees. She says they couldn't even take the children out to the beach or restaurant to celebrate Christmas. Kujo's 12-year-old daughter, Priscilla, says this will go down as a worst Christmas ever. I want to go out, she says, but my parents said they don't have money. Priscilla says some of her friends in the neighborhood went to KFC, the beach, and the pool to have fun, but they have stayed home all week. She didn't even get a Christmas dress from her mother, she says, and feels very sad. At Accra's busy new plant station, where holiday travelers can take a bus to other parts of the country, most of the commercial drivers sit idle, waiting for passengers. 40-year-old driver Kojo Minta tells VOA the poor economy forced many Ghanaians to cancel holiday travels. They reduced fuel, but here to be the point, things are still costly. Last year wasn't like this. Last year was COVID. We were having some COVID issue, but last year was better than today. This is, this is very bad to us. Ghana is Africa's second biggest exporter of gold and cocoa and was once touted as the continent's rising economic star. It now, though, has been struggling to pay its debt at a ratio of more than 80% of GDP, and its currency, the city, is the worst performing on world markets. The high cost of living has led to sporadic protests and calls for the finance minister, Kendo Furiata, to step down. Daniel Amate, an economist with the Accra-based Policy Initiative for Economic Development, tells VOA Ghana must focus more on improving domestic production. We need to produce goods that we have the competitive urge and also minimize importation of, of commodities that, in my view, are necessary and we have the advantage to produce them. Despite the economic woes, President Nana Akufuado still sounded optimistic for Ghana's future in his Christmas address to the nation. We've had to ride turbulent storm and we have been faced with the unknown. I'm happy that in spite of it all, we're beginning to emerge out of the difficult, which encourages me to say that with hard work, dedication, and continued prudence in the management of the affairs of our nation, we will rise up again. Ghana, in November, announced spending cuts, a freeze on government hiring, and a hike in the value-added tax to try to turn the economy around. The International Monetary Fund this month agreed a $3 billion credit arrangement with Ghana for the next three years to help support and revive its economy. Ghanaians can only hope the measures will be enough for a happier new year. Kent Mensah for VOA News, Accra, Ghana. Tensions between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda are threatening the region's endangered mountain gorillas. Despite the strain, communities living along both sides of the border have teamed up to improve gorilla conservation. Senamu Todd reports from Musanzi in Rwanda. 
Then this side, you just put red. Jospin Mwabunge is studying tourism and conservation at the University of New Technologies in Goma, a city in the Democratic Republic of Congo on the Rwandan border. He has crossed over to the Musanze district in Rwanda to learn more about community-based conservation from a non-governmental organization called the Red Rocks Initiative for Sustainable Development. He says his goal is to help local communities in the DRC benefit from conservation tourism. I'm learning here for to, to, just to try to copy the, the things how they are doing here and do uh, what they, they made here, they copy it in Congo in my country. The DRC and Rwanda, together with Uganda, share the Virunga Mountains, a chain of eight volcanoes that are home to just about half of the world's remaining mountain gorillas. On the DRC side of the mountains, the Virunga National Park has not been accessible for at least nine months due to activities by rebel groups in the region. According to the African Wildlife Foundation, the park's volcanic mountain ranges and endemic species made it eligible for the UNESCO's World Heritage List in 1979. But political insecurity, poaching and resource extraction have degraded the park to World Heritage in danger status where the park has remained since 1994. David Nenwa is a tour operator in Gomwa, and he says recent activities of rebel groups in the region have further threatened the park and communities that depend on them. The situation from Virunga, it was no good, but we are not taking tourists there because of the situation. It's the war for now. Maybe when the peace will be coming again, then we'll be trying to send the people there. To help, the Red Rock Initiatives in Rwanda is helping communities on both sides of the mountain share skills in art, craft, and community-based tourism activities. According to the CEO of the initiative, Greg Bakonzi, protecting the gorillas is the responsibility of communities that live around the mountains. Having the national park being shared between the three countries, I always see it as an important thing because gorillas they don't know the borders. So they move all around freely. And then what we want to do, we want to make sure that what we have done here on the Rwandan side is also shared. He says the project targets vulnerable women and youth from both Rwanda and Congo by helping them create alternative income through sustainable projects and tourism initiatives. They don't know why do people go to see the mountain gorillas and pay that much money to go and see them because and they are not they wanted to get direct so i always see that the more community-based organizations or products that you in, you develop outside of any protected areas that can benefit the locals it's going to be a part of the protection of the conservation Ima Raisa Isheja is a youth facilitator at Red Rocks Initiatives. She says locals from both sides are taking part in the initiative. The women who come here, sometimes they're very used to their normal ways of living, like growing crops and grazing animals, and sometimes some of them believe that's where it stops. But some of them, um, members of the community who came here at Red Rocks, they learned different skills like something dealing with housekeeping, some, a lot of things in the, in the hospitality management department. Bakonzi says despite tensions, the initiative plans to expand to communities around the Virunga Mountains. 
Sena Nutor for VOA News, Musanze, Rwanda. It's now time for Daybreak Africa Sports. And here is Samson Omali in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Monday morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, Douglas. We begin the sports with some hockey news. Kenya will host the African Club's Championships after the African Hockey Federation confirmed the country's rights to host the event. The annual Continental Club event is set for February 13th to the 19th at the Kenton College in Kililishwa. Most Kenyan clubs have in recent times failed to compete in the event, citing shoestring budgets. Kenya last staged the event in 2016 at the City Park Stadium in Nairobi as Eastern Company from Egypt won the men's title after beating host Kenya Please 3-2 in the final. In athletics, Ugandan long-distance runner and reigning Olympic champion in the 5,000 meters, Joshua Chiptegi has won the International San Silvestre Vallecana with a time of 27 minutes 09 seconds in Madrid, Spain. The world record holder defeated a host of elite athletes including Mohamed Katir from Morcia by 10 seconds. Katir kept up with the pace at which Chiptegi was running until the 7th kilometer where he surrendered defense of the title he won last year. In the female category, young Ugandan Priska Chisang won with a time of 30 minutes 19 seconds. The second place went to Burundian Francine Nyonsoba. And now to cycling, where the 2023 African Road Cycling and Paracycling Championships is expected to act as a preparatory event for the 2023 African Games. The Ghana Cycling Federation's Technical Director, Shaban Mohammed, said the championships, due to be held from February 8th to the 17th, will be a good opportunity for Ghana to expose the country's cyclists. Between 20 and 40 countries are expected to participate in the continental events with the African Road Paracycling Championships due to take place in Ghana for the first time. Competition at the Afghan Road Paracycling Championships is due to take place across elite, junior, youth and under 23 categories. In cricket news, South Africa middle order batsman Thunis de Bruyne will miss their third and final test against Australia in Sydney because he will return home for the birth of his first child. South Africa have already lost the three test series after suffering defeats in the first two tests in Brisbane and Melbourne. The third test will begin on Wednesday. And now to tennis, where fashion magazine Vogue Arabia has announced that WTA World No. 2 Ons Jabour is the cover star for their January 2023 edition. A Tunisian who is nicknamed the Minister of Happiness in her country enjoyed an impressive 2022 season, winning 47 out of the 64 matches she played with two titles to her name. And that's it for this Monday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Douglas in Washington, and Happy New Year. Thank you, Samson. Have a great week. And that's it for this Monday, January 2nd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for starting your week with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa and Red Carpet. 
On behalf of the entire Daybreak Africa crew, I'm Douglas Simpuga in Washington, wishing you a very good week. This is Esther Gidu, you are host of VOA Africa 54 television program. As we approach the end of the year 2022, VOA wants to give you, our loyal listeners, the opportunity to wish your loved ones a happy new year. Call us on our WhatsApp number, plus 1-202-258-3076. Leave a brief message and listen to it right here on VOA. The number again is plus 1-202-258-3076. Let VOA help you bring cheer and blessings to friends and family by just calling plus one 202-258-3076.